This episode is brought to you by FX's The Veil, starring Elizabeth Moss. FX's The Veil is an international spy thriller that follows two women as they play a deadly game of truth and lies on the road from Istanbul to Paris and London. One woman has a secret, and the other has a mission to reveal it before thousands of lives are lost. FX's The Veil, now streaming, only on Hulu. Get ready for the greatest roast of all time, The Roast of Tom Brady, a Netflix live event happening May 5th Hosted by Kevin Hart, the seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. Hello and welcome to Series 5, Episode 8 of Out with Susie Ruffle. Hello, how are you? I hope that you are having a good week whenever you're listening to this. I'm in a really good mood today. It's Saturday, the sun's shining and I'm not gigging tonight. So I'm quite excited. Don't get me wrong, I absolutely love going out and doing my shows. But it is quite nice to have a night off, isn't it? Um, and it's, I'm going to watch the series finale of This Is Us and probably cry. That's that's my that's my big plans this weekend. Um, I hope whatever you're doing, you're having a good day. Um, as ever, we received some gorgeous emails after last week's episode with Zoe Lyons went out. It seemed that lots of you really enjoyed that conversation. If you haven't listened to that one yet, I highly recommend you go back and listen to it. I think she is just bloody brilliant and I love her. So um, I highly recommend you have a listen to that one. Um, I've got some really exciting episodes coming up. I've got them all in the can now, waiting to go out uh, for 12 this series. Um, So I've got four more after this episode and I'm just thrilled with the ones that I've got to share with you. I've got a couple of very exciting ones coming out. So I, I look forward to you listening to them and I really hope that you enjoy them. But today, today we have the fantastic Joe Black, who uh, you might know from RuPaul's Drag Race. Me and Joe have so much to chat about, both growing up in Portsmouth, both having similar uh, stories to some degree and about creativity and obviously about the experience on RuPaul's Drag Race. So I know that you're going to really enjoy this episode and I can't wait for you to hear it. But as ever, before we get into the conversation, I share some of your emails. You can always get in touch with me. The email is hello at wasusieruffle.com. So let's share some of these. Oh, Susie, I am sobbing and laughing in equal measure listening to your chat with Zoe Lyons. I'm a 52-year-old queer woman who has had to navigate finding my sexuality in the same era as Zoe, where we had so little representation or positive examples of just ordinary people who weren't straight. I'm out and happy, now married with two teenage boys, but I know deep down I still harbour traces of internalised homophobia, which sometimes hold me back and affect my confidence. Zoe's quest to find her people or her comfortable place really resonated with me so much as I'm naturally an introvert and I find being seen as different, something I'm proud of, but also used to find quite difficult. I'm still finding my true voice and only now recognising my strengths and achievements. Battling to become a mother in the early 2000s as a lesbian with no internet and not knowing any other queer parents seemed like an impossible dream. 
which I am so lucky to have made a reality. I'm so happy the opportunities for queer people to become parents seem slightly easier these days and positive role models and information more widely available and it's slightly less judgmental in the world now. Having experienced Clause 28 in the dark ages of the 80s and 90s, I am an angry trans ally and strongly believe that the LGBTQIA community must stick together as if one of us is not safe, none of us are safe. I cannot stand by why trans people suffer the same debates and restrictions of rights that gay people experienced when I was coming out. Like Zoe, I feel I'm finding my voice now and my self-confidence, finally getting rid of those pesky pebbles in my shoes. She spoke with such honesty and openness. Thank you so much for your wonderful podcast and the great guests you have on who aren't afraid to tell their personal stories and reveal their vulnerabilities. And that's love Susie. And then in brackets, it says, you can use my name. So I will. Hello, Susie. Another Susie. Um, I loved receiving this email. And just so you know, I also sent it on to Zoe because I thought it would mean a lot to her as well. And she immediately emailed me back saying, thank you so much for sharing this. It really means a lot. Um, I, I resonated with so much of what Zoe said as well. I think um, she's always been a real uh, inspiration to me. And, uh, and she was real visibility for me when I was sort of coming through in stand-up and seeing someone on stage being their authentic self and me thinking, oh, I'm a bit like them, was so reassuring. And um, I mean, I've said that to Zoe. Being able to see her, you know, just ahead of me was always really encouraging. I, I can't imagine how hard it was to become a mother in the early 2000s as a gay woman with no internet and knowing no other queer parents. That must have been really, really hard. And... Um, Susie, I hope you know that the the steps that you made in those early 2000s, I know uh, directly impacted my ability to become a mum. So thank you for that. And thank you for your email. Okay, let's have another listener email. Oh, here's another one that I'd like to share about Zoe's episode, actually. Hello, Susie. I hope you're having a great week. I loved the Amazon special and I love the podcast. Thank you, George, and thank you for plugging my show. Um, Listening to your podcast, I was reminded of interviewing Zoe Lyons for the Sussex University newspaper about 14 or 15 years ago. I was a pretty shy gay guy, and I remember the prospect of interviewing someone for the first time was slightly terrifying, especially a quick-witted comedian. What I remember, though, was Zoe's warmth, wit, and smile. I imagine my questions were less than insightful and my journalistic skill as shaky as my knees, but she guided me through with no ego or annoyance, and we had a great laugh. I just thought I'd like to share that note of thanks. Those small yet meaningful interactions say a lot about people. Have a great week. And that's from George. Yeah, Zoe's just brilliant, isn't she? I remember her um, really being encouraging of me when I was doing stand-up when I was which probably was around the same time, like around 14 years ago, uh, when I was very green, as we often call it in comedy, green. I don't think it's just in comedy, is it? We say green when people are new at stuff. And uh, yeah, she was always enormously encouraging. And um, again, I passed that on. I passed that on to Zoe and she was really thrilled, really thrilled. Okay, let's have one more. Hi, Susie, I've been meaning to write for a while but I'm honestly glad that I waited as my understanding of myself and my sexuality has grown so much over the course of a few weeks that I'm sure an email I would have written would have been completely different. I've been listening to your podcast during my commute to uni in Melbourne, Australia, resulting in six hours a week for 12 weeks of solid introspection intersected with laughter and tears that I shared along with you and your guests. Being overseas, I feel as though the unique pleasure of rarely knowing your guests or being aware of them on the periphery at most, with a few notable exceptions being Mae Martin, Hannah Gadsby and Dustin Lance Back, which is how I found your podcast in the first place. I consequently feel as though I'm meeting people for the first time and it makes their unique experiences that more meaningful and moving, unobstructed 
as they are by prior preconceptions. Like others who have written in about your emails, knowingly sharing experiences and feelings of validation is another reason to thank you. I also believe myself to be just a passionate LGBTQIA plus ally, advocating for equal rights even within my Catholic all-girls school and to my parents and grandparents when issues around the queer community arose, such as the same-sex marriage vote in 2017. Throughout high school, I never really felt the desire for a romantic relationship with anyone of any gender or felt any real crushes that I can recall, either on famous people or those around me. Luckily, my friendship group placed no real emphasis on relationships or boyfriends like others our age, so I didn't feel as though I was missing out and I saw no reason to date when I'd yet to feel a spark. However, since the beginning of COVID, some time to sit at home and contemplate my feelings, I hadn't given myself chance to. I began to contemplate my sexuality and challenge the default mindset that I was straight. I found, and often still do, heterosexual relationships portrayed in books, films and TV as dull and uninteresting, and for many years the only content I have sought would be involving queer storylines. Clearly I was subconsciously seeking representation of more diverse relationships and people like myself, however it was only after I watched Mae Martin's Feel Good that I felt not only attraction but also a connection to the raw, honest, queer relationship portrayed on screen, that I concluded to myself that I may be queer. Looking back with a new perspective, the signs now seem obvious. I had lovely intense female acquaintances as my first year of uni, and while I didn't realise it at the time, looking back I can see quite clearly I had a crush on her. I always knew what she was wearing and what she'd done to her hair and when she wasn't in class. I worried about her, even though we barely spoke. Towards the end of the semester, she asked me to hang out with her after class, and I happily agreed. We spoke for hours, and she clearly recognised something within me that I hadn't recognised in myself as she soon commented on my nervousness as we discussed, unknowingly to me, all the first date questions. After a lovely afternoon, I unintentionally shrugged her off as I declined her invitation to sit with her in her next class, as I had a prior arrangement with some other friends. She was obviously her, and I couldn't stop obsessing for a few weeks over the way I could have done things differently to balance both my friends and her. She didn't come back to class again and I was utterly devastated, almost unreasonably so, considering I barely knew her. I realise now, looking back, what my feelings were, but at the time I had no idea and we'd hardly spoken since. Now, with a clear idea of who I might be, I haven't chosen a label, conscious as I'm yet to invalidate bisexual or pansexual individuals by labelling those terms as a stepping stone as I've yet to rule out men entirely. I'm open to everyone, no matter their gender identity, if it felt right. So I'm identifying as queer for the moment. I did, for some reason, feel as though there were some sort of limits to understanding or labelling my sexuality. However, your podcast has reaffirmed that I don't owe anyone a concrete understanding of my sexuality, not even myself. Now, after 12 weeks of binging your podcast, I am willingly and eager to let my relationship develop organically with whoever catches my eye. I am also so privileged to have parents I'm very close to who accept me and are willing to learn with me regarding sexuality and the LGBTQIA community at large. I didn't even come out, I just started discussing the potential of a crush on the aforementioned girl and its consequences of who I might date in the future. I can only thank the incredible brave actions of many of your guests and those in our community around the world for the progression of society at large so that I can authentically be myself without worrying. Thank you again for the podcast 
and for accompanying me on my long commutes. If you're over in Australia at the Melbourne Comedy Festival, I would love to see you live and I'll be recommending you to everyone I know. Apologies for the long email. Please keep up the amazing work. And that listener has asked to remain anonymous. Thank you so much for your email. I absolutely love the idea of sitting on a train in Melbourne with you. Um, That's the mind-blowing thing about this podcast is that people listen to it all over the world. Um, If you do listen to it in a in, in a far-flung place across the world. I mean, I'm very interested if you listen to me down the road in London, but uh, if you listen to me, always get in touch. I love knowing where people are listening to the podcast. It it makes me, I mean, you'll probably hear that I'm really smiling. It makes me thrilled that the podcasts that come from this little box room that I do these, that I do these interviews in, that they, they, they travel all around the world. They, they travel more than me, more than I've traveled. Um, I will be sure to let you know if I ever come to the Melbourne Comedy Festival. I hope that I do. Uh, maybe one day that will be, be something that I have the joy of doing. And I'm so delighted that the podcast has been, I don't know, like a guide or a friend or however you want to describe it. I'm so pleased that, that you've enjoyed the podcast so much and that it's, and that it's been so useful to you. That's exactly what I hoped the pod would do. And um, yeah, I'm wishing you all the very best. Okay, let's get on with today's conversation. Oh, before we get on to it, a previous email did manage it, but I do have a special. It's currently only out in the UK and Ireland, but um, please watch it. Um, I'm, I'm hoping that lots and lots of people can watch it and then maybe I'll be able to record another special at some point. And um, I'm hoping that there'll be a way for people to get hold of it across the globe. I'm, I'm gonna ask about that, I'm working on that. Um, I know lots of people have got in touch with me about not being able to get it in mainly Australia and America, but I will, I will be asking about all that sort of stuff soon and trying to find a way to make it globally accessible. Um, right, let's get on with today's conversation. The brilliant Joe Black, I loved this, I hope you do too. Listener, I am very excited for today's guest, easily one of my favourite drag performers that I have ever seen. Joe Black straddles the world of music, theatre and comedy, somewhere between Norma Desmond, Glenn Close, a Disney villain and a haunted drag queen. One of the leading figures in the dark cabaret genre, Joe Black has toured extensively across the UK, Europe, Australia and America for more than a decade. I absolutely love him and I know that you're going to too. Please welcome to the show, the fabulous Joe Black. <laughs> Hello, Susie. The, the last time I saw you, um, we were at the LGBT Awards. And then a very lovely woman came over and said hello and said it was lovely to meet me. And I leaned into you and I said, who's that? And you said, Alicia Dixon. Yes, that is yes. what happened. <laughs> I'm not very happened. good at pop culture things. It's, uh, it's she not, was very I was, lovely, wasn't she? She was, and she looked stunning. I was like, who yes, was that gorgeous. gorgeous woman? And you were like, Alicia Dixon. I was like, Alicia ah. Dixon. <laughs> not the strangest person that we met at that event because... Sarah no. Ferguson was there. Well, I was talking to you and then my back was to the door and you suddenly went, Hoo! Well, okay, what happened was I <laughs> saw her and thought, oh my God, a gay man has come in drag as <laughs> Sarah Ferguson. I love, I, I, you know, I'm there thinking, like, I just love gay people. We are so funny. This is hilarious. Someone's come as Sarah Ferguson, uh, she was, that, that's Prince Andrew's ex-wife for anyone that's listening, not in the UK and doesn't know our mad royal family. Um, <laughs> and I was like, a drag queen's come as her. That's so funny. And the closer she got, I was like, 
oh my God, that is a really good drag Sarah Ferguson. <laughs> and they got closer and I was like, oh my God, they've even got the voice down. This is fucking hilarious. And then she got closer and I was like, oh no, that's Sarah Ferguson. <laughs> and it was very strange. I will, I will not forget the joy on your face. It was, when she got up on stage and was like, this is the first time I've been into a room in my 30 years of public service where I felt like I haven't been judged. And I thought that tells me you don't know enough gay people because we are judgy <laughs> as fuck. <laughs> but also I think she might have had a wine, to be honest. I with think you. she had several but, wines. Yeah, there was there was a certain sway to the uh to the to the demeanor. And it was what was it that they said, oh Lorraine Kelly said, um, Sarah would like to say a few words. And she did that thing, do you know when you're like trying to compose yourself when you've had a few drinks and you lean on something? Yes. It started and I thought, yeah. Here we fucking go. Yeah, brilliant. <laughs> oh, what a nice night. I think Lorraine Kelly was quite surprised by it because she went, oh, and I think uh, I think Sarah Ferguson is going to come and say a few words. And you're like, oh, that that this isn't planned, is it? Um, but yes, anyway, we're not here to talk about Sarah Ferguson no, or Lorraine no, we're Kelly. Not. We're here to talk about you. So, Me? Jo, you! Me! So you're still in Brighton, but did you grow up in Brighton? No, no. Actually, I thought we both grew up in Portsmouth, didn't we? I thought you grew up in Portsmouth. And then when I was looking online, there was no reference to Pompey. It was just all about Uh, Brighton. I spoke about it on Drag Race, but they cut it all out. Oh, that's the thing you don't ever say over the edit. No, I don't bloody do. No, not at all. No, and then I got loads of people being like, from Portsmouth going, you're from Pompey, how could you forget that? And I was like, I didn't forget it. They didn't keep it in. Yeah, it's tricky, isn't it? So Because we met, years ago when I was filming a show called The Comedy Bus mm-hmm. and we went to the Hampshire Boulevard yeah. and watched some drag and hang out with some drag queens for the show. I mean, somehow it was linked to a TV show, but that's where we <laughs> first met. So, yeah, so let's talk about Pompey. So, I mean, listeners to the show will sort of be aware of bits of Pompey because of me, but what was it like for you growing up there? Whereabouts did you grow up? I spent very young years in Fratton, Mm-hmm. And then kind of from what I remember uh, and being more aware of as, you know, uh, not a baby was Port C. And then right. that was sort of where I where I stayed until I left Portsmouth. Um, my mum still lives there. She lives in the same same council flat in a very, very Portsmouth way. As you know, uh, there's people that just never leave. No, people love Pompey. That's it. They're there forever. <laughs> so I grew up in Port C, uh, which I mean, how I mean, do you mind me asking how old you are? I'm a little bit older than you. I'm 35. Oh, okay. So yeah, a couple of years older than me. So obviously then you will know that Port C, very, very rough. Very rough area. Yeah, it's where my dad's from. Yeah, Uh, until recently. Yeah, and now it's become quite zhuzhy. Yeah. Because of the Gun Wharf and there's the new blocks of flats and it's going up in the world. Yeah, it's, 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 you know, gentrification has, has laid its hand upon Port C. Um, but yeah, because of Gunwolf and stuff. But, you know, growing up there, it was like really, really rough. But, you know, I lived on, I lived on council estates. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, it was, you know, the someone a few doors down would have like, you know, had her kids taken away because she was like a crack addict. You know what I mean? It was very that kind of... Yes. You know, the, the, the guy who lived above us, I remember had like chronic bronchitis and just coughed all the time. Yeah. Um, it's it's just lots of characters, lots of characters. Yes, I can imagine that. And so, where did you go to school? I went to a uh, primary school was St George's. Oh yeah. Um, and then secondary school was St Luke's. Oh okay, I was St Edmunds. Oh, you were the rival school. I was the rival school. Yeah. Did you know? So when I was at school, I guess you might have missed this. 
that they actually changed the times of St. Luke's for like an hour difference. So we went into school an hour later. So there wouldn't be fights between our schools. So there wouldn't be fights. And then it turns out it was instigated. So there was someone at St. Edmunds that had a cigarette put out on their face by someone from our school. Oh my God. And that person, I found out a few years later, was my first boyfriend. Oh, wow. So it was him that had gotten attacked from someone from St. Luke's that made them change the times. That was like the final straw. Oh my God. But uh, St. Luke's no longer exists. You no. know, do you know this? Yeah, it's changed now, hasn't it? Char- Charter Academy. Yeah. Um, so they, they, I think it just, I don't know what made them stop. I think they just went, nah, we got to change something. We got to rebrand. Yeah, a nice rebrand. We had, um, our head teacher was, so I'm reminiscing now, uh, our head teacher was called like Mrs. Um, Buta Vodka. So it was, some, it was like a big, it was like a long Polish name. Um, and I showed all the blue eyeshadow and had like a big grey beehive. Um, so like, on reflection, I'm like, this, that woman was a drag queen. That, it, I think she was a drag queen. Was she your drag mother? I used to find her quite terrifying. So yes. <laughs> um, I think my drag mother might have been my English teacher, who was this Scottish woman that took absolutely no nonsense from anyone, but really liked me. Um, that's the, I think she might be my drag mother. I remember like every, even like the rough kids were like scared of her. Great. She was just this like no nonsense Scottish woman that was like, you're here to learn and you're going to shut up, you know? <laughs> Great. And so what was, what were you like, obviously I know you now, <laughs> from drag and uh, being sort of quite an avant-garde performer what was what were you like as a teenager at I mean at a school like St Luke's which was I mean my school was pretty rough but St Luke's was like like real hard nuts as we'd call them in Portsmouth people that yeah yeah. people that like had lots of fights for fun oh yeah um I was a goth I was a goth right that makes sense so, as we've painted the picture for the listeners that this is the sort of school that people get cigarettes burnt out on their face, I used to go to school with my hair dyed black and white wearing black lipstick. I saw the face you made then, and everyone, they do this, like, you went to St. Luke's and you did that, and I was like, yeah. You're the bravest person I know. Thank you, thank you. And I, I always use this as, like, when people are like, oh, don't walk through blah, blah, blah at night, oh, blah, blah, blah. and I'll go, I'm from Portsmouth, I'm all right. Yeah. Like, <laughs> I, I I went to like a school that got shut down because it was so rough and wore black lipstick there. Like, I think I'm okay. Were there other goths in the school? There were like metal. I was with like the metalheads. Right. Okay. So the metalheads and the emos. But uh, yeah, I was the I was the big old goth. I like my heavy music and I like my, my theatrical things, um, you know, theatre goth type, but, you mm-hmm. know, also listening to Cradle of Filth at the same time as the soundtrack from Cabaret, you know what I yeah. mean? <laughs> <laughs> and so how did the other children or young adults respond to you? Like, what did they make of you, do you think? I, I, I mean, obviously there was like, you know, your, your standard bullying yeah. from the uh, from people. But I think it was as I got older, they kind of just went, yeah, it's just that weirdo. That's all right. So, it's a, I mean, obviously you get a few dickheads. Yeah, of course. But um, as I've, as I've uh, not to out myself as a violent person, but um, <laughs> there were, yeah, there was a couple of instances when people took it too far. So I uh, reciprocated and uh, they never did it again. So you're tough as well. 
Um, yeah, I guess so. You're a hard nut. <laughs> I had no idea. Oh, I'm an, oh no, I'm a proper hard nut bloke. Yeah. From my dad was a, my, I remember my, my dad um, taught me boxing when I was uh, when I was a kid as well. So it was like my dad. My dad was a boxer. My granddad was a boxer. Very pompy. Very pompy. My dad <laughs> boxed. My granddad boxed. It's uh, uh, very that. But then my, my dad always said to me, it "Was like, do you know, Joe? Uh, it's, my, it's an impression of my dad here. It sounds like this." Um, Oh, I always thought you grew up to be like a boxer and stuff, and uh, yeah, didn't expect this. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> what does your dad make of your performing now? I think at first he was, he occasionally would say things like, When are you going to get a real job? And then sort of drag race happened, and he sort of went, Oh, all right. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, I think he, he he was like, oh, how long can this go on for? Mm-hmm. You know, how long can you make money off this? How long can you make a living from this? Because for him, it was like, he was, you know, he, he had a, a video rental shop and then it turned into like secondhand DVDs, then secondhand DVDs and bikes. And then he had a market still. So for him, it was all about like working and making a living. Mm-hmm. So he didn't, I don't think it really in his head made sense that I was doing this thing that, I guess he thought was just a bit of fun mm-hmm. and actually making a living from it. Yeah. I mean, I don't talk to him very often, but if I do, it will, it'll be like, uh, you know, still, still making a good living. And, um, do you still have your hairline is the other one. Cause he was, um, he was like completely bold by the time he was like 25. So, um, but I've, you know, I'm still going strong. I've got my mum's side of the family genes. Yeah. You know, it's still there. It's still there. I can see it. Listener. <laughs> I can see it. So you were sort of dressing up. Like, as a, if mm. you were a goth, you were already into sort of, you know, I know it was your clothes, but there is sort of a costume that goes with oh, being absolutely, a goth. absolutely, yeah. And so you were already sort of like experimenting with costume from quite a young age. I loved visuals and I loved dressing up. And I like, for me, like, even in the daytime when I'm wearing something, it makes me feel a, feel a certain way. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's not even so much... People say sometimes dressing up is armor, and I don't. For me, it's not armor. It feels like I'm going ah, and this is me. Do you know what I mean? I'm not defending anything. I feel like I'm showing things. That's interesting because yeah, I think that people would potentially think of it as sort of war paint, certainly with yeah. all the makeup and stuff. But that's a really nice way of looking at it. That it's sort of more celebratory. Yeah, for you. For me, yeah, for me, it is. Yeah, which is fantastic. So, at what point were you out at school? Sort of. Actually, this is, okay, right, I shall, I shall weave you a tale. Please, please. By the, by the end, yes. So, I remember kind of going, oh, I think I might be a homosexual. <laughs> um, uh, at sort of, I think I was probably like 15. I mean, I was with the goths and the metalheads, so like everyone was bisexual. It was right. in the emos. Do you know what I mean? It was that sort of, I was like, everyone was bisexual. Everyone. You didn't, you know, you never had an attraction to the opposite, uh, to the same sex. Ah, you're still bisexual. Right, it was okay. very that kind of crowd. Um, but I then, yeah, and I told some of my friends and then one of them I had a, an argument with one day and he was a right. I think he's in prison now, actually. I don't know what for. Um, he was, I mean, on reflection, actually, he was knobhead, but um, he was my friend in school. Um and then I had an argument with him, you know, off he went, blah, blah, blah. And I got home and my mum said, uh, Joe, is is there anything you'd like to tell me? And I was like, what do you mean? And it turns out, because he was angry at me over this argument, 
he had his mum was this very like just imagine a woman who looked like Tammy Faye and she was like a spiritualist and she was very kind of Mrs. Bouquet mm-hmm. type. Imagine Mrs. Bouquet but looking like Tammy Faye. Okay. And he had gone home and he had just for some reason told her that I was gay and that we'd had an argument and she phoned my <gasps> mum and just told her. That is so cruel. That is unbelievable right. that a parent would do that. I can't even remember why she told her, but it was like, I, I, it was specifically malicious on his part for sure. And clearly malicious on hers. Um, uh, and I did, you know, did that. And then she said, well, I had, I had a call from James's mum. And she said that this happened and sort of went off on it. And then I started crying and she was like, it's okay. It's okay. I knew anyway. It was it was one of those ones. Yeah, but even so, that's so hard for it to be taken out of your control. Like that it wasn't oh, yeah, something it was that out of out of my power entirely. Yeah, that's so unfair that an adult would do that to a child. Uh huh. Then I guess once you were out to your mum, was that was there was there a sense of relief that you weren't sort of having to think about that anymore? I I, I guess so. Yeah, but I think there comes that sort of residual shame, doesn't there? Yeah. Where you kind of, you don't sort of outwardly tell anyone until they ask. Mm-hmm. Or in, until something comes up. But it, I mean, I think I probably has it had it fairly easy compared to a lot of people because I was already looking quite, um, do you know when someone says, oh, they're just, they're a bit eccentric. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, I think that's code word for that. So I think people just sort of went, yeah, of course. Yeah, that adds up. So I had it a lot easier, I think, than other people. But um, I think for years I would still kind of avoid outwardly saying it. And even now, I would find... Well, not not in recent years, but like just before, I'd be in a cab and rather than saying a boyfriend, I would say a partner. And I'd, you know, tax driver would be asking what was going on and you'd, and you'd be really vague about it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But um, I, make, I make conscious effort now to say like, boyfriend... Um, but yeah, that that's that sort of thing still lingered for a long time, I think. Well, I think it's it's also there's an element which I think that straight people don't have to, uh, to deal with. It's where you sort of go, how dangerous is it to out myself here? Mm-hmm. Yeah, you have to assess it. Yeah, there's always a threat. And I feel the same about like walking around holding Alice's hand. You sort of go, is this an area where this is okay? Like, not because... I would ever hide my sexuality, but also because sometimes I just can't be fucking bothered. Mm. Oh yeah, for the the stares, comments, that sort of thing. All that sort of thing. I still can't hold someone's hand. You wouldn't. I can't. No, I just something about I. I, I think again, growing up in Portsmouth, it's that I've got that kind of assess danger thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I understand that. Even now, as a, you know, I'm 32 this year, um, and I and I, I can clearly like hold my own mm-hmm. um, in a situation, but still, like public signs of affection, I'm like, oh no, this might cause problems. Sad, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, but it's you know, bloody heteronormative society. Well, yes, but it is. There is a sadness to it that we're still on that bloody journey, mm-hmm. and that we can't just all bloody relax. But I don't, I don't clock it until it goes to happen. Then I'm like, oh, and there's like a, a panic. Um, and that's weird that that still lingers. But, you know, it sticks with us, doesn't it? I think so. 
I think it does. And I think it's that, you know, you mentioned shame, which is something that comes up a lot on the podcast. I don't know, it's that sort of burying of who you are and the constant assessing that just makes you feel othered. Oh, yeah. And it's sort of strange to know that what I, you know, what I do for a living and, and sort of visually how I present, that that's still a thing. Like, I will happily get up in front of however many people looking like a Weimar sex clown and, you know, roll around and uh, and do sad ballad covers of George Formby. Yeah. But, as soon, uh, uh, you know, holding someone's hand, oh, that's too far for me. That's too much. I don't mind doing drag on the television. But holding yeah. a boy's hand on a train feels... It's a little gay. It's a little gay for yeah. me. <laughs> so what happened? So did you move straight to Brighton? Because you've been doing drag for more than 10 years. Well, see, this is another sort of... Another tangent here, Susie. So we've been doing cabaret shows since right, okay. sort of 2007. Okay. So we're coming up for, well, 15 years next yeah, that's how time works. Um, yeah, 15 <laughs> years next year. And so it was all very androgynous, but there was always like makeup and an element of costume to it. Mm-hmm. And then I moved to Brighton, I think either 2012 or 2013. And that's when I started becoming more, I sort of made sort of queer friends. So did you not have like a queer network at all in Portsmouth? Not particularly, no. No, no again, I was I was with all, all the goths still. And then I had like a couple of gay, gay male friends, um, but very normal people. You know what I mean? You know, they, they do their job and then they go out and get pissed. They wear a polo shirt and some jeans. Not, not coming for you, Susie, there. <laughs> <laughs> How dare you call me normal? <laughs> you love a polo shirt and jeans. Don't you do- know me. You know me. If it, <laughs> if it trims me in, I don't mind it. It w- wasn't very queer. It was very gay. Go to Hampshire Boulevard. Was Martha's still around then? Yes, it was. I went to the closing night of Martha's. Yeah, that was the first gay bar I ever went in. Oh, that was the first gay bar I went in. They used to do an underage gay night. And I went there and there was only one other young gay gentleman there. Um, So actually, no, technically, no, he was my first boyfriend. The one I spoke about who got the cigarette on his face would be my second one. But the first one only lasted a couple of weeks or whatever. The other one was a bit longer. And uh, yeah, that was, and it was the only other gay person there. And it was just, I think there was maybe like, what, 12 people there? Oh God, it's so, that, that, that's obviously, so, it was such a sweet thing for the people at Martha's to put on. But if you turned up and you were like, there's only 12 of us. God, we're yep. a small group. Yep. So that was, yeah, that was in, in, in Martha's. So yeah, I went there for that. And then I went to the closing night. So that was a nice, sort of, I guess that was a, a, a sort of a little send off for it you know my first yeah. ever experience of a gay venue was that when I was underage and then when it closed I was there for the the final goodbyes yeah um and then I went to Brighton and I did sort of met much wilder characters and I was like people kept referring to what I was doing as drag even though I wasn't at the time I wouldn't have considered doing drag you know it was like I'd wear like a a, a suit and you know very MC from cabaret sort of like that vibe and then I just sort of went, oh, I guess I can wear whatever I want. And then I started doing like the turbans and the kind of Norma Desmondy thing because I, I really liked Sunset Boulevard. I love Sunset Boulevard. Your Norma Desmond is very good. Oh, for you. Uh, and, and so I'd started sort of doing stuff like that. And occasionally I'd like be in a dress. And then people would just like, and I started getting put onto drag shows. 
And I was like, oh, I guess I'm doing drag now. But nothing changed about the performance. Really, I mean, obviously, obviously it evolved, but like there wasn't like a, okay, I stopped doing this now and now I'm doing this. I was still doing the cabaret, you know, my very kind of your Berlin cabaret type thing. But visually it just started morphing and, 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 and shifting. So I guess you could go, what is drag? But it, it, yeah, it wasn't a, a very clear cut point where suddenly it was like, oh, you're in a finger wave wig and a pencil dress now. It just happened. And I guess, but you know, tell me if I'm wrong, but I feel like walking around Brighton in drag, I think often what people don't realise with Brighton, certainly when you perform there in like, for me, in like a comedy club, it's actually quite stag and henny in Brighton. Like it's not, you sort of assume that it's going to be like this very liberal, artsy audience. But actually when you go out there, it's like people that are in for the weekend that want to get absolutely shit-faced. Well, because you do do like comedia and stuff, right? Yeah, I do like mainstream comedy, yeah. So the I've been at Comedia before when I've been in the other room. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I've when that room. the when the when the comedy ones been on at the same time. So it, I remember going to go inside from a cigarette and groups of lads, and then the security going like, "You get one warning, then you're out." Um, very very that. Yes. Yeah, that sort of vibe. But you know, I mean, Brighton is very very hen and stag and occasional birthdays yeah anniversaries you know because i worked at a dinner cabaret club for the longest time so the audience was entirely made up of anniversaries birthdays yeah. and empires and so would you would you walk around in drag in brighton <laughs> if i've got somewhere to go like it's generally like you don't really get trouble i mean even if, if you walk past a stag party you'll get you're like stuff or, you know, hemp. Oh, my God, look at you. Oh, my God, you could do your makeup better than me. You know, yeah. um, great impression of my mum there. Um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, you get that sort of thing. But ge- generally, I mean, not as a blanket, because everywhere's, you know, nowhere's entirely safe. Yeah. Um, but, you know, gem- gem- generally fine. I remember walking through dressed as the Wicked Witch of the West once yeah. or something. And, and someone shouted, don't make him angry. And I was like, I'm not the fucking Hulk. <laughs> Have you even heard of Wicked? Um. <laughs> um, but the uh, people keep um, tagging me on things that I should be Madame Morrible in the film. I think you'd be great as Madame Morrible. Oh, thank you. Thank you. I, I, in my head, it's like, I don't know. I just can't stop thinking about Leslie Joseph doing it for some reason. Oh, that'd be, I mean, that'd be quite funny. I, I, I don't know why I'm, I'm, I'm sort of hyper fixated on her doing it. <laughs> like the way I was really fixated on um, Kathleen Turner. I was really fixated on Kathleen Turner being Ursula for the Little, uh, little yeah. Mermaid live action. Um, and I just, I just kept like, anytime it would come up in conversation, people go, no, I think it should be Gaga. And I'd like Google Kathleen Turner and be like, look at her, look at her. You tell me this woman isn't Ursula. Because <laughs> as uh, you know, she's, she's gotten larger, she's gotten older and she's got these high arch eyebrows. I'm like, this woman is Ursula. And she sounds like this. Well, she's not. It's bloody, what's her name? Melissa McCarthy, who I'm sure is going to be a fantastic, oh, yeah, she will fantastic be good. Ursula. She will be good. But, you know, it's Kathleen Turner's voice. I've gone on a tangent. Um, I've got, I really enjoy women with raspy voices is my favourite genre of existence, actually, uh, of anything. You know, actress, uh, you know, singer. Um, they could be a mute. As long as I know that they have a raspy voice, I'm happy. Um, so I listen to Marianne Faithful. It's not because, you know, I particularly love the songs. I just like hearing her going, <laughs> 
It brings me joy. And that's sort of what your sort of Joe Black character, because where, where's the line between you and who you are on stage? Because a lot of drag performers will have like a stage name or mm. would refer to themselves when they're in drag as she. But I know mm. that for you, you always say he. Like, wh- where is that line for, between you and the version of you on stage? Well, I think I've always seen it more as like a music or sort of like rock show type performance. Mm-hmm. How do you feel about the word drag queen? Do you like it or are see, you... I, I don't, see, I don't refer to myself as drag queen. I refer to myself as just, I guess, just cabaret, really. Yeah. Or I'll say drag. When I said drag performers at the beginning, I, I yeah, made a point of saying same. drag performer at the beginning because I felt like... I don't know whether I've heard you say that or whether it was just a vibe that I was picking up on. Oh, the vibe is correct. <laughs> So I, I mean, ideally, I think I'm uh, I'm just I'm cabaret. I'm a cabaret performer, musical cabaret, uh, but sort of drag is is sort of the casing of it. I mm-hmm. guess the 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 the, the presentation. Um, and for me, it's like I'll get into, you know, it's my Joe Black is my real name as well. Yeah. So it, I'll just sort of get into the costume, and essentially, it's just it's just me, but in a look. It, it, it's how I see it. There'll, there'll be, I mean, an element of sort of more chaotic yeah. perform, performative uh, stuff because I'm actually fairly calm, um, but on stage I'm not. There's a sort of a, a manicness, but I don't feel like I become another person or it's not a separate mm. person at all. I'm just, I'm treating it like, like the way, you know, a singer in a band would walk out and do and, turn and it perform. On. Yeah. Um, like, I mean, I went to go see uh, Nick Cave recently in Brighton and uh, not that I'm comparing myself to Nick Cave, but, um, you know, he's just this sort of tall, sort of gangly man who writes these songs. And I think he's probably sort of a calm, artistic presence. And then he gets on stage and he's like throwing himself around. You know, he's not he's not going down to, you know, the local tea room and and being like, <laughs> you know, it's it, it's the, the I think that's the same thing for me is that it's just I'm just performing but i mean in one of frank skinner's books about stand-up he says that you know as a you're sort of similar to a comic in that way and that like as a comic when you go on stage you sort of turn up different parts of yourself mm-hmm. and then yeah. when you come off you turn them back down <laughs> but yeah. so you're sort of showing up and is there anything that you do on stage is there things that you do where you think well i couldn't do this in real life would you say the things that you would like to be able to say or is it is it more just about the performance element um, I mean, sometimes I'll, I'll make sort of funny, rude comments about people, mm. which, of course, in my day to day life, I wouldn't, you know, my, my one of my favorite things to do is especially in like formal dinner cabaret type venues is to just find particularly if it's like a man and wife kind of type out for an anniversary and I'll like walk and I'll stop and I'll, and I'll be like, oh, denim at a cabaret show. Good for you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Things that things you know, ne- never in my day to day life would I ever stop someone and be like, "Check in a Costa." Good for you. Yeah, I, I, I guess like yeah, like a comedian. It's just it's just part of the act. The manicness is turned up, and they'll be like, "I'm never like rude to people," mm. but like those those little sly like eh, 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 little 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 things. Like I've never never roast someone in an audience. I because if you know, whenever I that's why I actually don't like going to traditional stand-up nights because people always talk to me because they'll go well you look different and i remember going to the wedge rooms before to see a a comedy night um when andrew i went to go see andrew o'neill um 
who obviously wonderful, uh, but the rest of it, you know, straight male comedian types. Yeah. Um, and as soon as someone goes, you, I just, my brain goes, boom. And I'm like, okay, I'm in show mode. Um, and I don't, I don't, I want to just sit and watch things. I don't want to be involved. A strange thing is that as someone that's so, I guess, showing off ish, is that I hate audience participation when I am in the audience. I don't want to be involved. I don't want to show off. I want to sit quietly and see what's going on. So you like, you like the control? Yes. Like it needs to be on your terms? Yes. Oh, I feel, oh, I feel like I'm being analysed. I love it. <laughs> but that makes sense. Also, I think that it makes sense talking about the ownership of being a goth, the ownership of like people being unkind to you at school and but having, but you, you like, you know, I don't know, reflecting or rebuttaling whatever they had to say about you by being sort of avant-garde and then taking that all the way to doing something like what you do now. It's, Mm -hmm. you know, it's the same with me with stand-up. Like, I will say the thing that you're thinking about me or I will send myself up so that you can't. Oh, yeah. Because then I'm in control of the scenario. Yeah, same thing. You know, that's where my, my entrance line on Drag Race... When I, w- when I walked in, I said, oh, I know what you're thinking. God, don't Glenn Close look rough. Was because I used to start shows by, I'd like finish the first song and I'd like pause and have a few breaths and I'd go, I know what you're thinking. Fuck me, Glenn Close looks rough. Just like um, straight away at the beginning. And yeah. I haven't said it actually since I went on the show. I was like, oh, I said that. And I'd said it at every show and now suddenly I've never said it since. Um, but immediately I'll be like, oh, don't I look like a rough old clown? Um, like I'll I'll be the the first to acknowledge that yes this is fairly ridiculous and on on the subject of the control thing actually one of the things I do most is in cabaret show contexts if I'm not doing if I'm not doing my own show I'm generally a host mm-hmm. so I guess that's a kind of uh, con- a control thing is that I enjoy being the kind of in a cabaret show, I guess it's... I mean, it's similar to in a, in a stand-up night when you'd have your host. But, like, in a cabaret show, because there's so many different types of things going on. Mm-hmm. Uh, it could be circus or burlesque or, say, you know, all of that sort of stuff. I I enjoy being the conductor. Yeah, the, the, the holding everything together. Yeah, and the facilitator. I saw someone refer to themselves as a host as a facilitator of good times. And I enjoy, I enjoy that. The first time my partner Alice came to a comedy show, because she wasn't into comedy at all before she met me. I don't know if she's particularly into it now, but she's very supportive <laughs> of my wants and dreams. But she referred to the compet as the introducer, which I just thought was so funny. <laughs> you know, the person that goes on and introduces people. Like, yeah, the introducer, that works. Um, so I read, when I was sort of doing my research on you and reading up, different things about you i read that you've talked before about i hope this is correct usually sometimes things on the internet aren't correct oh go for it but but that you've that you've had tourettes or that you've i do have tourettes yeah yeah. and so to tell me a little bit about that have you always had that so it developed sort of early in secondary school and people were just like oh you've just got a nervous tick and then i we went to a doctor and they were like, no, 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 you've got Tourette's. So mine is, um, and you might even be able to hear it on the recording, actually. I go, mm. and, <clears throat> and do that. And I, I, I do this like heavy blink thing where I hold my eyes closed for ages. Um, and it's just sort of weird kind of pulses of muscles, I guess. It's just that, I mean, it has been explained to me properly, but I, I can't think of the right words. Where it's, I guess, spasms of, of certain things that make make stuff happen. So, yeah, mine's, mine's coughing, sniffing and blinking, which on a night out will make people think that you are absolutely off your nut. Yes. 
Um, so, so many times people have been like, are you on coke? I'm like, no, I'm not. I have a, I have a disease. And they'd be like, oh, go on. Go on, go on. I was like, I, I don't have any. It's it's medical. So yeah, that that's how mine manifests. But there's, you know, uh, I know Pete Bennett, who won Big Brother, lives in Brighton as well. And I uh, I know him. And his one is obviously like famously quite sweary. Yeah. Um, You know, with the bird whistle and calling people a wanker. But they do also change over time. So uh, like you'll sometimes develop new ones briefly or ones that stick or one goes away. Like for a while, I had one where I'd wink at people, which is that sort of quite disconcerting. If you're walking down the street and you say, that's one. I mean, people can't see this, but I used to do this. Yeah, you're sort of like bringing up your shoulders and knocking your head back. Yeah. Yeah. Which actually, you know, hurts. But when you keep doing it and you can't control it. And so is is that something you're aware of when you're on stage? Does it ever happen on stage? I'm not really aware of it happening. I think I'm so occupied that I'm not really paying attention to it. But it, it's kind of not obvious in interviews, particularly when I watch some of my like press interviews back for Drag Race, the blinking one I found that I did quite a lot. But if I'm talking, I think I'm quite conscious of vocally what's happening. So I'm kind of the the kind of coughing and stuff like right now I can like feel it trying to happen, but I'm like trying not to. But the moment I relax, I'll go, <clears throat> mm. you know, I feel like I kind of know the version of you that you were at school that was sort of give no fucks. But was that something that you were like, I don't know, were you embarrassed by or were you, or did you just own it? I never really thought about it. Oh, that's great. That's good. Because I'm very, and people ask, I'm like, oh yeah. Or they'll go, oh, why do you do this? I go, oh, it's Tourette's. Um, But it's not, um, because obviously it can be so severe for people that it, it does genuinely really, really affect their life. Um, again, I'm very, very lucky that mine is is so mild or that at least I'm so used to it and don't care. It's just what I do. It's just a part, uh, part of me. But yeah, no, I never really had problems with it. Again, the only problems is when non... Like, I remember being in Portugal and someone, like, wouldn't let it drop. And they were like, why do you do this? And I was like, it's a medical condition. And they were like, but why? Why? And they just... I, that's mm. When people don't get it, that's when I'll get, like, frustrated. But it re- very rarely comes up. Like, I was... It's a shame, actually, because I really wanted to talk about it on Drag Race, but it never, never came up. So now that we've we've got on to Drag Race, was that something that you, had you applied the previous year? Was it something that you, because it's obviously quite a new thing to the UK. Mm-hmm. Was it, were you quite into the American version? Um, well, I applied for season one um, and I'm glad I didn't get it because I wasn't ready. I'm not a very competitive person. I don't like doing competitions, but I did it for in a basically it's here and it's going to happen whether you like it or not mm-hmm. so i was like well got to put my hat in the ring because it's it's a massive thing yeah um and it uh, because of it i have been able to do stuff that otherwise uh, those doors might not necessarily have opened mm. but it wasn't like i didn't specifically like i am going to do drag race yeah i i, I did it because i was like okay it's a good platform um see how i do uh, it'll be an experience. I'll learn things. Did you enjoy it? Uh, no, not at all. Oh, really? It's 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 very, very, very stressful. And because it was the only TV I had done w- since when I've done TV, I'm like, oh, oh, so they're not, they're not all that stressful. Do you know what I mean? Like in my head doing, like I did um, Celebrity Ghost Trip, which is like the Halloween special of Coach Trip. Amazing. Right? Really fun. Um, 
And I and I was like, okay, it's a reality TV program. There's arguments, blah blah blah, all of that sort of stuff. And then I did it, and I was like, this is nothing like filming Drag Race. So it's very much its own beast. Like it's not, it's not there to make you feel comfortable. Right. And you're pitted against each other from the off, aren't you? It's very competitive. Yeah. yeah. And it's 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 you know, um, and I don't mind saying this, so don't don't feel like I'm uh, you're gonna have to cut any of this out. It's very manipulative. Do it once you're on the other side. You're like, oh, okay, yeah. No, this isn't. Um, I think the the edit, you know, you watch the show and you're like, for you seeing, say, someone's trauma or something happening to people, can be like, a, oh, I find them relatable or something that becomes a meme. But when you're on the other side of it, you're like, okay, this isn't very fun. But it's packaged as a fun thing, so that to the audience, it's not, you know, they're not seeing all the all the all the stress of it. Um, but no, I didn't, I, what I do, I enjoy the relationships I've made from it Mm -hmm. and the, um, the doors it's opened and uh, the wonderful people I've got to meet both audiences and other performers and, um, and all of that, all of that stuff. But the actual thing itself is just, it's, I, I think if you're really competitive, great. Um, then that kind of stress and, you know, just banging it all out is, is, you know, worth it. But for me, I was just like, I'm going to go in and have a nice time. But it's not made to be a nice time. Yeah. And I loved your H&M dress. That pink H&M dress. Well, I ended up raffling it off for uh, Sussex Beacon, which is um, a local uh, HIV uh, charity in, in Brighton. And um, we raised £12,500. That's amazing. Which we, you know, I try. I, I when it all happened, I was like, I didn't think they'd even keep that in. To be honest, that rant because it named a brand and it's the BBC. But yeah. you know, I guess they can choose when they want the brands to be named. I was like, right, we've got to do something good with this because this is like a moment. Mm-hmm. What can I like? It's doing no good sat here. I'm not gonna, and I don't want to be one of those people that gives it too much power and then keep wearing it at shows and being like, hey! You know, and getting people to like shout at me. I didn't want to do that because I think that gives too much power to something negative. So I wanted to take that negative thing and try and think of the biggest impact that I can actually help other people. Yeah, I love it. And it did. And H&M have been very nice to me. Now that's nice. They've been so sweet. I did a YouTube video for them, which was really cute. And they sent me some of their Vampire's Wife collection stuff. Very cool. Which was really, really nice. And yeah, they've been so, so, so sweet. And that obviously they got them a little bit of attention, didn't it? Uh, <laughs> it was a great dress. It was cute. And someone messaged me and said, oh, my friend wore that to the BAFTAs. Amazing. Right? Yes. But also, you know, it's a pop thing. What am I going to do for pop? I dress like a mad old woman. What am I going to do for bloody pop? You know what I mean? <laughs> and I, saw, I, I, I said on the thing, I was like, my other options are a bit mm, old. So it was like, you either get the pink short dress or I'm coming out here in a fishtail. <laughs> like, choose, make your choice. Make your choice. I'm either looking sort of like, you know, old studio system, Hollywood, or I'm going to wear that dress and just going to have to deal with it. You're going to have to be okay with it. My favourite bit about that, though, was when they were slagging off the, they called them the Fagan gloves. Mm-hmm. I fucking love it. I fucking love fingerless gloves. I d- and I still and I still have those ones and I keep repairing them when they break because I love them. And as, as they're slagging them off, MNEK is sat next <gasps> to them wearing basically the same Amazing. gloves and they slowly slip their hand under the desk love it i love a fagan glove i think there's nothing says fashion statement like a fingerless glove 
There you go, guys. You heard it here first. I know. I love him. I loved Fagin as a as as a kid. Uh, you know, I loved Oliver. I loved Oliver. The Fagin reviewing the situation scene on we had it on video, and I would just replay it over and over and over again. Um, so may, maybe you know, uh, my my drag mother is Fagin. There we go. We finally got there. <laughs> Now, Joe, at the end of every uh, interview, thank you so much for chatting to me. I asked the same question. And I'm maybe thinking of the version of you, I don't know, when that horrible boy's mum outed you. What a cow. You know, and, and you were that goth at school. If you could get in touch with him or someone like him and, and sort of give him a bit of advice or give him a bit of, give him a bit of encouragement about what's to come, what would you say? But this is to myself is that nothing should change because things are going to work out. You know, keep doing what you're doing. Um, you're not hurting no one. You know, just, just carry on doing what you're doing because uh, I think, you know, I'm, 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 sometimes I forget it, but I'm very, very lucky. So, I, yeah, I don't think anything should change. Keep doing the thing. I love that. This has been brilliant. Thank you so much, Jay. Oh, it's been such a pleasure chatting to you. I've loved this. Oh, I loved that conversation so much. Fantastic. Uh, please follow Joe on all of the socials. I just thought that was brilliant. Please join me again next week for another episode of Out. If you want to get in touch with me, you always can. The email is hello at com. I want to hear from you. Um, let me know where you're listening. Do remember that I do have a couple of other podcasts. I have uh, Like Minded Friends and I also have Wine Times. If you're interested in wine, then I highly recommend you listen to Wine Times. It's me talking with a very clever sort of wine critic about wine and interviewing people. I mean, what a job. What a job. I mean, what a laugh. But I'll, I'll speak to you again next week. I'm just waffling now, aren't I? Watch the Amazon special. Please like and review. Send me an email and I'll see you next week. Okay, bye-bye-bye.